Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. The Slate Political Gab Fest is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and get a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code GABFEST. And by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code POLITICAL. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 16th, 2015, the Tom Hanks Went to Community College and So Should You edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura in Washington, D.C. On today's show, France, a week after Charlie Hebdo, has the world responded in the right way to those killings? Should President Obama have gone to Paris? Why are we ignoring terrorism elsewhere? Then Mitt Romney is contemplating running for president. Wait, who wrote this nonsense? Who wrote this? We get it. We change interns and we get nonsense like Mitt Romney <laughs> is running for president. He had me Tark, going, what he is had, going on? He had me going there for a second, Emily. I know, me too. What, like our, did thought, our teleprompter right, bust? You know what I think? What happened? I think he's been going to like community college acting classes. He really threw himself into that little head snuffer there. I was thinking about that it. Like, was I was, as, I was, as I was preparing this introduction, I was like, wait a minute. We're not really going to have a discussion about <laughs> whether Mitt Romney is running for president. We're not really going to do that. But apparently we are. <laughs> Then then President Obama's uh, new plan to make community college free for all Americans, including Tom Hanks, plus we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, John Dickerson is going to tell us how he does, how he prepares for to cover presidential campaign. It's an amazing process involving push-ups, we'll sit-ups. Because he doesn't know how he does it. Sit-ups, an all-kale diet. I'm joined, of course, you heard Emily Bazelon there in New Haven of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily Bazelon. Hello, David Plotz. And to my right here in Slate's Washington office, Washington studio, is John Dickerson of Slate and CBS News. Hello. Uh, hello, David. You know, you mentioned that about the campaign thing. Did you guys look at the video we did in 2008 from New Hampshire where Emily and I were on the phone? Yeah. And you were on the... You were near death. I was, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I really that was, was near death. Slate in which I thought you were going to expire as yeah. I sat next to you. Yeah, that was... I really was. You know, well, anyway, we can talk about that on the Slate Plus. We are more than a week past the Paris attacks on Charlie Hebdo and a kosher supermarket. Much of the West remains fixated on that. Charlie Hebdo published a first post-attack issue, sold 5 million copies of that issue, which is more than 100 times its usual circulation. The cover, of course, contained another caricature of the Prophet Muhammad. There was a huge rally in support of something or other. So maybe one of us can tell me what it was in Paris last weekend. And then Unity. there Unity, yes, that's a good one. There were demonstrations in the Muslim world against Charlie Hebdo's new issue uh, and against it as a, its, its general mockery of Islam. President Obama 
has been uh, criticized this week for not attending the Unity March. There have been claims of responsibility for the attacks themselves, from both from ISIS and from al-Qaeda. Emily, one of the themes of the past week has been, yes, this Paris attack, terrible tragedy, really awful, you know, brutal, despicable. But why so much focus on that when there are hundreds being murdered in Pakistan, when Boko Haram in Nigeria is murdering thousands of innocents, and here we are, you know, the world leaders only come together because there's been, a, you know, 12, 12 French people were killed. Well, I mean, we do have, as a kind of Western media-driven society, an unequal interest in human life. And some lives get lots and lots of eyeballs and attention, and others get much less. I mean, this is much more unusual than killings in Africa and the Middle East, right? So there's that kind of rare sit up and pay attention quality to it. And I also think it really matters that journalists were killed. You know, another worrisome part of this is that if you're a terrorist trying to get a lot of attention, this clearly did the trick. And so as a new kind of symbolic attack that gets you headlines for days. This has a lot of appeal. So there's also that more sinister way of thinking about how we apportion attention. Not to jump right into this question of whether President Obama should have gone or not gone or should have sent Joe Biden or or something else, but I, and there's not really been a great explanation for why nobody was, nobody of high level was sent, including the Secretary of State. But I wondered if, to Emily's point, that, that might not have been some of the thinking, whether the idea that you end up affirming what these terrorists did by by basically stopping the world to acknowledge it. I mean, sure, it's being the marching and the solidarity is in total opposition to the terrorists, but they can leap over that and get past that and say, look what we did in an afternoon. Right. We got right. a million people to turn out and stopped all the world leaders to come right. listen to us. And, you know, think about all of the quarters in which that message would be received favorably. Right. No, that this gets to one of my favorite bugaboos about nine about nine eleven. The nine eleven attacks were not a triumph for Al Qaeda because of what they achieved. They were triumph because of what they compelled us to do, or they persuaded us to do, which was this wars everywhere, torture, drone attack, all the things that sort of spun out from that have have raised the cause of those who carried out the those attacks. And I, I've I've often you know asked myself. Would the world be a better place had the United States literally done nothing in response to 9-11? Had there been no response of any sort? Now, obviously, that wasn't going to happen. But had we literally done nothing, would the world be a better place? And I think you probably – it probably would be. You mean, you mean had they shown restraint? Had they shown so much – yeah, but like it's – this is restraint beyond restraint. A degree right? of restraint that's I mean, unthinkable. You're not allowed right. to restrain. Were they allowed right. to bury the dead, right. David, in your head? Well, I think, <laughs> I think in my hypothetical you can bury the dead, but that you don't – there's no, no, there's no but, offensive action that, that comes out right. of it. Well, this I mean, is, this is actually – listening to um, re- the history of the U.S. involvement in World War I, what's amazing if you look, go, look back at the U.S. involvement in World War I is that the United States in the years before we entered the war and before – so from 1914 to 1917, the U.S. sustains huge casualties, huge casualties, huge numbers of Americans are killed because, as innocents uh, in transit across the Atlantic. Right? German, German U-boats are, are sinking ships on which Americans are transiting and you know, hundreds, thousands of Americans are killed and, and there's still like literally no call – 
or very, very little call, except from Teddy Roosevelt, for the U.S. to enter the war. Like, Americans do not want a piece of it. They stay out of it. So even though they're being killed in tremendous numbers, they did. So it's not – so it is possible to have a policy like that. Yeah, but that's before we were a major world power in the way that we are today. That's like – Right. I mean, that removes an entire century of yeah. military buildup and attempted world Absolutely. domination. Absolutely. Well, you know, yeah. it, but but to back to David's point, we're getting far away from France. But one of the leaders, one of the top 10 names you might recognize who fought in the theater of the war on terror, is that vague enough, has made the case that basically the, the smartest thing the U.S. could have done after 9-11 was wait not go right after Afghanistan, to do a sort of a limited version of what you're talking about, David, perhaps still respond militarily, but to sort of think through the second order effects that come from opening up what would then be perceived as a war against Islam in certain areas. Right. And, and, and knowing that right. was to be the reaction right. to try and f- Do we think that, that the, French, the French overreaction is going to be profound? Yes. I mean, I think, sorry, I was waving my hand because I wanted to get to talk. I think the corollary to what John is saying is the subtext of this problem of the lone wolf attack or the little wolf pack, where you have these little groups, maybe they're inspired by Al-Qaeda or, you know, these terrorists got some training in Yemen back in 2011, but they seem to be independently operating for the most part. And so, What would it take to have the kind of surveillance where you would need to be stopping two brothers from planning an attack like this? It's kind of overwhelming. And the unless we're missing something about these guys being plugged into some larger network, it suggests that this is something that France and other countries are better off just figuring out how to learn to live with, as painful as that is. Because how would they ever get in close enough with enough? I mean, that kind of surveillance is really alarming. It's interesting. I mean, there are people who say you you can either go big or small on this, which is you can either talk about specific surveillance techniques that you're talking about, Emily, and ways to shut the borders down, the ways to watch and look for people who are on fly lists. And then you can go big, which is think of this as a 30-year struggle between civilizations and that you have to kind of arrange the Western civilization and foreign policy of all of those countries in such a fashion that it will try to uh, get rid of the causes of this kinds of violence. How you could even figure out what the causes are and how you would apply measures to get rid of them, it seems to me to be incredibly difficult. But those are kind of the two different ways you can do it. And one thing that interested me when I was up in New Hampshire this week with, and I talked to Rand Paul about this, what struck me is that you remember his father used to say, these terrorists want to kill Americans because of U.S. foreign policy. I mean, he said, basically, we go around the world and we stick our finger in people's eyes. And then, of course, they want to come after us. And that, that you know, Which basically... Which is what they tend to say as well. Well, right. And so it, it, he, that got him a lot of heat, right, in the, in the presidential elections, because people said, you're saying, basically, we invited 9-11. His son does not take that view. His son says, well, that can be debated by philosophers and think tanks. He then says, what America needs to do is to keep these terrorists out. So he is, he is, what's interesting then to your point, Emily, is if Rand Paul, who's a famous defender of civil liberties and famous opponent of the NSA, 
is saying we nevertheless have to ensure or do everything we can to keep these guys out, which suggests, and obviously he's not talking about wiretapping, but he's putting the energy of his efforts into the very same domain that you could see slopping over into a much more aggressive national security state. Because yes, you can try and keep them out, you know, by tightening up your your TSA, but you also, it seems very likely that the second thing you would do is also do more surveillance, do more spying on uh, domestically. I mean, there's a third element here, right, uh, which at least in countries like France, where you have this very alienated minority Muslim population living in these isolated apartment houses in the banlieue or however I'm mispronouncing that. You would try to integrate those elements of society and not have people feel like they are not a part of the national identity, have this hopeless economic future, etc. And it seems like there's been a real lack of attention to that in France and other European countries. And the best outcome from this would be to galvanize people to start addressing that more forcefully. Right. Isn't it? I mean, this is a different point because this has to do with the Jewish victims. But there were these four French Jewish victims of the kosher supermarket attack killed, you know, because te- anti-Semitic terrorism. They were as far as I can tell, three of them had no particular ties to Israel at all. One of them did. And all four of them are buried in Israel in this weird way. And you think like, these are French people. These are, they are Jews, to be sure, but they're French. Why is it that they're the, suddenly this religious identity, which was part of them, has completely trumped their national identity? And if it's, you know, it's happening to French Jews because they don't feel themselves to be fully French because of anti-Semitism and lots of other reasons. And it presumably it's happening even more so to French Muslims. And that's a that's worrisome. I mean, I've always I've always thought like one of the best defenses against this kind of terrorism, of this kind of non-state terrorism is strong states, is like stronger nationalisms. But that means a, na- a kind of integrative nationalism of the sort that the United States has, where there are not that many people in the United States who don't feel themselves to be strongly American. There are some, and you know, a, a lot of African Americans, I think, like have there's a there's a deep ambiguity because of the terrible history there, and the Native Americans because of the terrible history there. But because there's so so many people are voluntary immigrants to the United States, all the Muslim Americans essentially are voluntary immigrants. Like there is a sense of stronger national identity here, which I think prevents some of what's happened for the these Muslim communities where where people just don't they don't feel themselves to be really French. They feel themselves to be French asterisks. What did you guys think of the new Charlie Hebdo cover? I thought it was fine. I mean, you know, it seemed to be totally in the spirit of their it seemed, of their exercise, right? It seemed nearly perfect. I, in fact, it seemed absolutely perfect for who they are and what, I mean, I guess if there had been a skewering that the magazine would lampoon the way people are holding it up in in a certain way. So maybe if it had a flavor of that making, uh, but that probably would have been going too far. I mean, not going too far, but just it's probably out of the realm. What do you think, Emily? I liked it too. And then I was struggling with this issue. You know, I can't think of a parallel in Judaism and Christianity where there's imagery which is not offensive in its the way it's constructed, right? It's not, I mean, this image of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad was not like his hairy butt, which some of the cartoons they'd published in the past, which I thought were just like bad, were like that. Whereas this one, 
there's nothing about the drawing of Muhammad that I saw that seemed problematic, but you're not supposed to draw the Prophet Muhammad at all, right? That's a problem. And I couldn't think of what the analogy well, would be in well, Judaism th- and Christianity. No, you can think of it like, where Judy, I mean, for Judaism, you can We're think not of supposed like, to draw God. No, but. no, but it's it's different. I mean, it wouldn't, in Judaism, isn't it like the, the, like the most pernicious racist stereotypes of Jews, like the avaricious, hook-nosed, you know, greedy, greedy But Jew. isn't that like a racist drawing of Muhammad, not like a drawing at all. That's the struggle I was having is I was thinking of the Muslim. There were some Muslim objections to this cover because it represented Muhammad Muhammad at all, right? Well, yeah, but see, that to me is like, that seems to me not something that we have to privilege. I don't know why we have to privilege that. Why is that? Like, you know, is Wikipedia not allowed to put an image of Muhammad on the page about Muhammad, a historical figure, Muhammad. Like that seems crazy. Like I don't even know why we have to think about that issue. Well, because that's how the Muslim faith, or at least some Muslims, interpret their faith. You know that Muhammad's in the freeze at the Supreme Court. Jess Braven at the Wall Street Journal did it no this week. No way. Yeah, he's up there. And there was like a kerfuffle about this in 1997 by a Muslim American group. And they asked the court to take it down. And Rehnquist was the chief justice. And he was like, no. And then um, some influential Muslim cleric issued a fatwa in favor of keeping it, saying that it was meant as a gesture of respect. And even if it was kind of off, that the intention of the artist was good. And so it sort of has dropped away as being an issue. But yeah, he's he's there with like other prophets. I think this gets us back to the conversation we were having last week, which is that you can find something juvenile and distasteful and even inciting and say, you know, you probably in a world where there's a lot of sorrow and bloodshed and misunderstanding, I would prefer to be on the side of people not kneeing somebody in the groin over their religion. However, I respect an institution's right to do this thing that I wouldn't necessarily do myself. I mean, that's isn't that where we, we're back there again in terms of this cover? Yeah, we always end up back there. Yeah. All right. Let's hear from our first sponsor this week, which is Stamps.com. One great resolution you can make for the new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. There's an easy way to do that with Stamps.com. Think about how much time you've wasted going to the post office, driving there, finding parking, waiting in line. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. You can use what you already have, your computer and printer, to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package and have your mail carrier pick it up. With Stamps.com, everything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. Right now, use our promo code GABFEST and get the special offer of a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer, which includes digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. For all the details of the special offer and to sign up today, go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. At Stamps.com, enter GABFEST. Apparently, Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham think they're running for president. So does George Pataki, the Republican presidential primary. Who is he again? Can- Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The Republican presidential primary campaign is in the pregame state of farce. John, this is got this Romney thing has got to be a joke, right? It is like a piece of of elaborate piece of of Romney performance art, right? Like the Romney sons are doing this; they're all pranking. It's like they're it's a new it's, it's a the new next season Netflix of punk. series, actually. <laughs> yeah. No, it seems all to be real. You know, Mitt Romney felt like he was going to win on election night in 2012. 
The fireworks. The fireworks were ordered. <laughs> and he still has a dog. Did they literally order fireworks? Yeah, yeah. The fireworks were ordered, and um, I mean, somebody in the I can't remember whether what this person was in the room. I think they were in the room. Anyway, they described election night as like a, mur- a death in the family because well, they thought. Well, that's what it's like on Mitt, the documentary. Because they thought that he was going to win. Uh, the reason I take us all the way back to that is that that little colonel still is in the shoe. And then after that, Romney. Wait, isn't the lesson of that that the man is deeply delusional then? Like, because well, what no, no, person no, 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 could no. have looked at the, that data in 2012 and thought, I'm going to win? Well, they looked at the wrong data. I mean, they were looking at data. They were looking at the data and making judgments about turnout that were just wrong. I mean, as as somebody, a high level person in the campaign bet me, I think with less than a week to go, a thousand dollars for every point Romney won independence if he were to lose the state of Ohio. So if he were to lose Ohio and then win independent voters by 11 points, which he did. I would get $11,000. I have not called to collect. But the idea was that it was such an absurd notion that he would win independent voters and yet still lose the state that it was just obvious he was going to win Ohio. So they just misunderstood the shape of the electorate. Anyway, I can't believe we're talking about so, this. So, but wait, no, this is, but, well, that's only because we're, it's, I, I was going to try and do this quickly. Anyway, so then in 20, then in the subsequent to the 2012 election, he feels, Romney get, feel, gets two little booster shots. One is he goes around the country being the, the good soldier campaigning for everybody, going to Alaska, Louisiana, going everywhere. Actually, I'm not sure if he went to Louisiana. Anyway, went to every state that he could where there were campaigns. And the, he, his reputation revives in the Republican Party. It is also helped in that his famous comment about Russia being a strategic adversary of the United States and, and Barack Obama lampooning him and ridiculing him. And then Obama looking totally hapless when it came to the Russians, both with, with respect to Syria and then with respect to the Ukraine. So there is a feeling among some Republicans that Romney was vindicated. And then also the various problems in the, in the government with the IRS and the VA and all these other parts of the government that don't work that make a guy who was supposedly good or not supposedly good, was good at turning around big, complicated institutions, make people think, oh, hey, we should have a guy like that up there. He also has a great deal of money in his fundraising network and a lot of people still in that fundraising network who are real boosters of his. And if you have boosters in one of the key portions of the presidential game, which is the raising money part, you have to be taken seriously. So he is uh, – and he's working the phones hard trying to see if he can rebuild his um, his structure. So it is very real. There are some people who think it's uh, done – that it's done, that he's going to run again. Right. Emily, John is saying some just totally batshit stuff over here. So let's just ignore him for a minute. <laughs> So let's talk about only... there is no way. Is there any way? <laughs> let's have a conversation, just me and you. Is there any way Mitt Romney is running for president? Really? I think he might be deluded enough to do it. And I, like you, feel only a sense of derision. It's just, I shouldn't be surprised by this anymore that the people who do things like this are just so full of hubris that they can't imagine that someone else who didn't lose already twice could be better at running a race than they are. And yet, I guess that's the kind of person who runs. It also seems to me that it matters a great deal that Romney's father ran for president, that he has this deep Mormon faith and this sense of mission. I think he really does feel like this is his destiny, and there's a way in which that is pulling him toward this. No? I, uh, yes? I, I don't know about the, if I would use the word destiny, but I definitely think that he and a lot of people who would like to see him be president think he has the actual skills for the job. Yeah, let's, I think that. So, so here's that. the deal. So, so let's imagine – Let's imagine. Let's imagine you you want a world in which the talents necessary for the job are the ones that get you hired for the job. 
that would be a good thing. And that's so people think, let's have that world as opposed to the presidential campaign not testing any of the talents required for the job and failing in that weird test to keep you from getting to the office for which you have these skills. That's what keeps them. You don't have to have like a massive sense of destiny. You can just think, I can fix this car. Just let me get to the car. I shouldn't have to like compete at, to be the best archer where while do, simultaneously doing a hula hoop in order to be able to get the opportunity to fix the car. Just let me fix the damn car. That's the Yeah, but that's just how it works. So to not no, recognize that yeah, is yeah. delusional. Yeah, well, it's it, you're right. It is delusional except for when you're doing the archery contest while wearing the hula hoop. There is a an occasional moment, unpredictable, but it does come, where they pause it for three minutes and everybody says, you know, say, instead, okay, of this, watch you fix the car. instead of this silly thing, oh, we'd like to, to ask you what's the difference between like a lug nut and an apricot. And somebody goes, eh, that's a lug nut. And they go, oh, okay, you can be president. And said, so he's like hoping for that three minute thing while he's like ordering special hula hoops and sharpening up his bow. You know what really bugs me about this whole kerfluffle? And fine with me if he goes ahead and runs. What really bugs me is the idea that he is running on helping poor people. That it, like I, with a straight face, I am supposed to believe that like the deep priority of Mitt Romney is to fight poverty after his 47% comments, after his whole life. It's just not plausible and I just – it ugh, it rankles me. Well, I actually – I don't agree with you on that. I do not share that form of derision. I feel like he I have lots of other forms of derision, but not that one. Do you believe him about this? I believe he's a man he is a man who loves to solve problems and one of the things that happened to him in 2012 is he he learned very very hard that this viewing of America as two Americas, one of takers and one of makers was was wrong and that there are all kinds of people in poverty, the overwhelming majority of people in poverty in this country are in poverty because of lack of opportunity, lack of good jobs, lack of good education, and that they there were pro- those were problems that he could go after. And I think he, instead of deriding him for that, I view it as like that's a that, this is growth. This is a man who sees sees a set of problems that he didn't see before, and now he really wants to tackle it. I don't think this is well, cynical. You are I don't think so he's much a, more generous. I think he's not a cynical am. man. I actually don't think Maybe he's a cynical right. man, and that's that's. Look, I of all these people running for president, he seems to me to be the most reasonable on the Republican side. He, I think he would be a totally good, completely respectably good president. Oh, that is so ridiculous. naive. Really, that is just because the notion that he would get into office and then just like get under the hood and competently – screw in all the lug nuts or whatever you do when you're under there. God knows what it is. That's just crazy because, in fact, he would be beholden to he, precisely the same conservative so interests of whoever ev- gets yes, elected every on single, the Republican Every side. single one of the Republicans who's elected will be beholden to conservatives. The question yes. is which one, which ones of those will, will be beholden to conservatives but will also be decent managers. I feel like Romney – is there? That's that is. Yeah, a, but a if role his Romney priorities for what he's managing are the wrong priorities, then he could manage us into disaster. Well, I'm not saying that I prefer him to Hillary Clinton or to a to you know a Democrat. You B. said he would be a good president. I think he would. He would be a perfectly president. passable good. Yeah. He so, means okay, by the standard let, of, of John, normal mediocrity. Of, let me. Do, well, can I just add one thing, which is I think yeah. in this game, the, the the thing that could create a situation in which the wheels come off the Romney presidency, despite his familiarity with lug nuts, is that the presidency requires being a good manager, but it also requires a political skill. And we're not sure what that political skill is anymore because we have like, basically everybody's still talking about LBJ, which was, you know, LBJ wasn't even LBJ in the sense of the way in which people talk about them. 
But there is a certain political skill that's required to operate in what is a thoroughly political business. And so the question is, would he have that talent? And we don't really know. And his Massachusetts record doesn't suggest he really did have that talent. I would say we have contraindicating evidence. Well, no, we have. We know that he's not good at running presidential campaigns. But Barack Obama was very good at running presidential campaigns and doesn't really have the political talent either in Washington of the kind I'm talking about. And Democrats and Republicans alike say that. So Romney was not great at it in Massachusetts. But the question is whether he has it. And if he doesn't have that, then he could come in and be a great manager all day long. And he wouldn't know how to get anything through Congress. And we'd be sort of stuck in the same place. Well, I don't even know what that's like to have a president who's not able to get anything through Congress. That sounds totally unfamiliar. John, one of the the articles I read, I think it was by Betsy Woodruff and Slate, actually made the case that the, the only people who really want Romney to run are conservatives who look forward to him siphoning money and attention away from Jeb Bush and Chris Christie. Is that is that a true theory? Well, it's two things. Again, when I was with Rand Paul, Rand Paul said more the merrier. Rand Paul has a. That's what everyone says when they mean. Don't ask me that question. No, 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 no. I think, and legitimately, Rand Paul has a version of oh, what I Betsy see. was writing about, which is. So let's go to the, her point first, though. You you get two things if you're a conservative. One, you have a ready-made punching bag in in Mitt Romney, a person against whom you can sharpen your knife and show your folk how conservative you are by beating up on Mitt Romney. Um, you know, your mixed metaphor of sticking knives into punching bags is a little upsetting. Um, Sand would probably come out. So you have you have that, and you have what you're talking about, which is a kind of conservatives are enjoying the fact that for once the establishment side is going to split its vote the way the conservative side splits. But the the thing that Rand Paul's talking about is that the shape of the race is a little different this time. You have the establishment side with a lot more characters than normal. Then you have the social conservative side with a kind of a Santorum, Cruz, Huckabee kind of situation. Maybe Jindal might run. Who knows? Rand Paul has a kind of a lane in between with his dad's supporters, a kind of people who participate in the process just in a totally different way. So you could imagine two wings splitting their vote and Rand Paul standing in the middle with, you know, winning these primaries and caucuses with like 21 percent of the vote. Um, His dad came in second in New Hampshire with 22 percent of the vote. That, I think, is a total possibility. The, the, The splitting of the vote will be really interesting. Who gets crowded out with attention being paid to the putative Romney campaign? Is it the, the kind of marginal candidate who might catch fire like a Kasich or a Jindal? Who, or a Walker. Or Walker Scott who then Walker. can't get as much attention? I think the Walker, Rubio are the ones that are hurt by this big money competition in the sort of establishment wing. Walker, I think in particular, because Bush, Christie, and Romney are all running as sort of pragmatic guys with executive experience. They can get stuff done. They've been in the executive office. Well, Walker can make that same claim. Walker arguably has fewer blemishes. An actual governor? Well, yeah. I guess Christie is one too. He has fewer blemishes than those three do. And yet his ability to raise cash on the order that they can is sort of inversely proportionate to his blemishes. Having said that, remember that he fought this huge war against the unions for which he developed a, quite a substantial and robust, robust fundraising list, which included you know, lots of uh, support from the Koch brothers kind of wing of the conservative movement. So he's not bereft of fundraising uh, prowess, but certainly not on the order of those three. Interestingly, he is backing away from the new anti-union law that his legislature is interested in passing, or at least the Republicans in Wisconsin want to pass. John, when do you think we will know the basic shape of the field, like who's really competing? This summer. 
I can't think which of it. Which I will note is an entire year from the actual Republican convention, which right. they just scheduled for July instead of August. You know, I um, I was uh, when I was in New Hampshire, I was kind of feeling like, God, why? I, I feel like I'm up here awfully early. But like Hillary had, I think, announced by now in 07, and Obama announced by February of 07. So we're not. And Muskie, I mean, I realize we're Muskie. that goes way back. But, no, but Muskie, uh, I think it was Muskie. Anyway, who who announced like super early? Be Senator Muskie of Maine. Yeah, yeah. born after the year I don't know what 1972. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're born in 72, you still probably wouldn't know who he was because you'll miss that famous moment when he called oh out God. the the publisher stop. of the Union Leader stop. and said he doesn't stop. walk, he crawls. Emily Lindsey Graham is also going to be president, apparently. Oh, well, that's good for him. What can I say? There are so many of them. It's just amazing. All right. So John says summer. And what's your what's your over under on how many serious candidates do you think there'll be? I don't know, because you have two interesting things now. One, if you just want to stay in the race and be a noise. Rick Santorum-like? Well, I mean, Santorum has an interesting, yeah, I mean, Santorum was fighting for a cause and it, he finally caught fire. I mean, he did win 11 contests. But there are others who have aspirations to just make a noise, play a role, get a talk show, increase your speaking fees. And then there are the, those who could stay alive. Remember, Newt Gingrich basically stayed alive because he had a sugar daddy who was willing to keep funding the structure or you know, kept him alive through a lot of extra money, and so did Santorum. So you could be a dead candidate and still have a lot of money flowing into the race. Also, you never know. Like if Rand Paul... Looks like he's going to do really well. There are a lot of people who don't think his interests are aligned with Israel's who would work hard against him and might support another candidate. Might I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of money flowing around. So I think it could be super unpredictable, which should be uh, which would be exciting as long as it's not just like a huge Thunderdome cage match in which it, it's just that could like be exciting. Cra- well, yeah, it could be exciting, but also just kind of feels like it's sort of pointless. So I don't know. I got no- I got nothing right now. Let's hear from our other sponsor, which is harrys.com. The holidays are over, and there is a chance to start fresh and start making smarter decisions. What would you have done differently in 2014? What are some of the smarter decisions you, Mitt Romney, are going to make in 2015, such as don't run for president? Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind in 2015. You can make the smart switch to Harry's, which has high-quality German-engineered blades that are crafted for sharpness and precision. It's half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and it's free shipped straight to your door. They have a starter set that's only $15, which includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. I use the shave cream, which I really I really like. I'm not. I, John was complaining about my beard. No, not complaining. You complaining, complaining. You complaining about it, but I do, and I because I've been out of town this week, I haven't had a chance to kind of clean up the areas around the beard. And I do that with my Harry's razor and shave gel, John. <laughs> and as an added bonus, if you are a new customer, you can get $5 off your first purchase with our code POLITICAL. You can get an entire month's worth of shaving for just $10. So go to harrys.com, enter coupon code POLITICAL at checkout for $5 off, and start shaving smarter today. President Obama this week made an audacious proposal to spend $60 billion or maybe $80 billion, depending on how you look at it, over 10 years to make community college free for all students who maintain a decent GPA. This proposal would have to get through Congress, fat chance of that, but it's a bold step in endorsing and pushing for higher education for more Americans and in easing the tremendous cost and tremendous debt burden that 
higher education imposes on students. It also, it kind of sets up a nice arbitrage for students, which is that you can go, you would go and you'd get two years of college, community college free, uh, your two years towards your degree and you finish up your last two years at a high priced or relatively high priced school and you've basically gotten a full bachelor's degree, four year degree for, for the price of two years. Emily, is there any chance that Congress takes this proposal or something like this proposal seriously and that it, should they take such a proposal seriously? I think they should for a few reasons. One is that the most successful social programs we have are not targeted. They're universal in the way that this one would be. And this one actually in some ways would benefit middle-income students and families more than poor ones because already low-income families get most of or all of their uh, community college tuition paid for through Pell Grants. But when you have this kind of universal program, then you attract all kinds of new people to it. It usually has much more longevity and approval rating bonanzas going into the future. And all of that seems like a real advantage to me in a world in which we need a more educated workforce. There is one thing about this that I – it's not that I think it's a negative exactly, but it's just like a question mark for me, which is that – One of the reasons we need community college is that high schools aren't doing the job that they should be doing in the sense that kids get to community college. They need a lot of remedial classes. Often they're not really ready to do college work. And I wonder if there's some way in which this proposal could be part of trying to boost the quality of junior and senior year of high school rather than just like extending mediocrity onwards. Um, I mean, I think there's some effort in the proposal that the Obama administration has put out to do that, but it's still super sketchy. So you can't really see how they're going to make community college itself better and the end of high school better as opposed to just more available. I think they were trying, yeah, trying to focus mostly on on lifting the standards of the community colleges, both by incenting programs that have partnerships with existing companies. So if there's a high, you know, a a skilled manufacturing business in the area or an IT um, firm in the area that the community college can partner with, I think it gives incentives for them to create or maintain programs that help with that kind of almost vocational training. So I think all the, and, and then just more broadly, bringing up the accreditation of the community colleges. You know what? Well, first of all, 40%, did that number, 40% of Americans in college go to a community college, did that number, did that seem high or low to you? That seems low to me. Does that seem high to you? I couldn't tell. At first it seemed, at first it seemed low, and then I was trying to decide whether that was a definitional thing. Like, the the percentage of college age who go all the way through is a quarter, is that right? Yeah. So, I was trying to figure out whether a lot of people were going to college and bailing. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the biggest... The biggest problem with community college is that something like 80% of people say they're, when they start they're going to finish in three years or go on to four-year programs and only 16% do. I mean that's the – it's there's right. a retention so problem and a success problem. That's what, that's what I was trying to figure out. So it's 25 for four-year and 16 for community college in terms of going all the way through. So if you in start in community finishing, college in terms of finishing, years. yeah, oh, okay, Wait, finishing t- the two-year degree in three 16% years. 16% finish or 16% finish and then subsequently get a bachelor's? I think just finish in three well, years, period. Grim. I think actually it's 19% across the country and 16% is urban community colleges. I mean, one thing that's missing from this proposal, there's a mention of it in the, of this very successful program in New York. It's ASAP. Don't ask me what that stands for. But Ann Holbert did a fabulous piece in The Atlantic about it, I think, around a year ago. And it's all about 
guidance counseling and advising and how Byzantine any university can be. But Anne makes this great point that the better, the more elite the school is that you go to, like if you go to Harvard, you get tons of counseling on the way. People like hold your hand all the way through about what classes to take, how you fulfill your major, yada, yada, make lots of exceptions for you. Of I certainly was I true. I did not for, find that to be true. That actually. was true for plots. They were constantly <laughs> coddling him. David was, was the only person who didn't velvet. get his Ivy League school to like do his bidding. I don't know. All, whatever. Layer it, after college, layer of emoluments of were then brushed they, on. And him. I've tried to help various um, four different people go through college who are low income people coming in with not super robust academic skills or knowing how to navigate systems, and man, it is rough. Right. And if you fail a class early on, it screws up your funding and your loans, and it just, like, it turns bad really fast. Yeah. I mean, so, the, anyway. Just to, in that vein, Emily, and I haven't studied the proposal closely enough to know this, one of the things that actually seems to me alarming about it is this requirement of GPA, which is so that you, you get your tuition free if your GPA is 2.5 or above, but it does suggest C plus, right? Yeah. So there's going to be this class of students who are the most vulnerable students who are going to fail to do that, and they're also the ones who are going to be least able to pay back that tuition. So I like there's there's a set of people who are going to go in expecting to get to accrue no student debt because well, they think the they're to going to achieve, it, and then they're going to be like, ah, no. The right. way to do well, it to make them pay. They shouldn't I guess. have to pay back for the semester. I mean, if they do it that way, that would be awful. Yeah. I mean, I've been helping an 18 year old guy. It's not a community college he's going to, but it's, you know, a school he's going to. And he failed two of four or five classes. It was his first semester. And I kept saying to him throughout the semester, like, are you going to the teacher for help? Are you asking for help? And I think he really was trying. And it he could like he couldn't get the help he needed. And that was just so infuriating to me. Um, and I, you know, maybe I should have done more about it, too, along the way to share my guilt. But in any case, it suggests you're right, that there's a way in which sometimes kids get set up for failure in these institutions. So, John, close us out with a question of the political prospects of this. Is there any chance that Congress looks at this, considers something like this, passes something like this? Or is this, is this pure, pure theatrics from Obama? And Congress isn't the only hurdle because it's got it's got a public it's got a state federal portion. The feds pick up the a bigger portion, but the states twenty five percent of the cost. Right? right, right. I think it seems remote. I think it seems I think it seems remote. But in the bargaining, and we don't know what the bargaining is going to look like. But you know, I mean, you think of things like the president's push for early childhood ed- education, which has has was in one of his previous State of the Unions. Was it the last one or the one before it? Um, I think the one before last. You know, which didn't get anywhere. So I think you could, you know, in the bargaining that goes through, I guess we could see if it, it might be a chip that gets kind of traded. He gets that in order and gives in on something else. And, and you want that kind of thing, right. basically, That'd actually. Be great. Yeah, yeah. You want, you know, because he knows he's going to have to give in on some things. So at least he can say, okay, fine, I'll give in on whatever it is that Republicans want him to give in on. And then he'll say, but you got to make me whole on, you know, on this um, community college thing, which which sounds good. I mean, you know, in other yeah. words, it's not like, you know, free cash to gamblers. You know, another statistic, by the way, just before we close this up here, that struck me and that did feel right, but that was also amazing, is the community college program in Tennessee, which offered free community college in Tennessee, 57,000 kids applied. That's 90% of the college-eligible 
kids in, in Tennessee, just in terms of the Wait, high and they cost. they predicted a small fraction of that. Yeah. I mean, it just, I guess we know about the high cost of college and college loan story from the one end, and this is from the other. This is the demand side of what, and it just shows you just the th- total thirst out there for a quality and affordable education. Of course, free is, is, is different than affordable, but still. And the smart bet you can make to start a community college and then finish somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Well, I worked for Tom Hanks. No, he didn't finish. He never that finished, was the right? end of that op-ed. No, I didn't get you to didn't the end of the op-ed. Thing. I never get to the end of a four-year school. But uh-huh. did he wait? Did he graduate from his community college? He did, yeah. but then I'm pretty sure he did one more year at a four-year school and then stopped. Awesome. Well, didn't he do? Didn't he get his housing thrown away because he dressed up like a woman? That yeah, would be that a was a problem. Show yeah, called Buzz and Buddies. Nice one, John. In these days, that would be they'd have a whole dorm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He would he back would, then. Yeah, was, but they, he'd have to show with. God, I am better. That show would not work today, would it? It does not hold up well. Challenge to listeners watch that show. Does it hold up? (laughs) We don't need to discuss. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're you're, uh, watching Bosom Buddies, Emily, what are you going to be chattering about to uh, your dear family? I read a really interesting piece in Slate this week uh, by Will Aremus about Facebook and videos and why Facebook taking in videos from sites and having them play automatically on Facebook could potentially spell doom for our entire industry because Facebook is going to figure out a way to take away most of the video revenue. Was from... I quoted in that story? He interviewed me. I don't know me. if you – I think maybe not, but I'm sure you could have <laughs> I'm been. sure you were really interesting, though. Don't uh, – if you could send us a transcript. <laughs> it's we'll not that we'll cut you or anything, David. It was such a good piece. I, I, I have been kind of watching this. David Carr did a piece a few months ago about how Facebook has been quietly asking media – Organized media, whatever we're called, businesses to basically hand their content to Facebook instead of having Facebook go out. I think this was called skinning, right, David? Didn't we call it that? Where, yeah. like, yeah. basically, instead of going out and then getting the advertising revenue, it all goes in and then maybe you get a little slice of the advertising revenue. Anyway, it was all very alarming. And I recommend reading that piece as a dire prediction for the future. He will, will wanted me as the non dire person. Uh, Wait, what's well, maybe the non- he got cut because he ended up only with dire predictions and decided you were wrong. But do you want to make the case that everything will be well? No, it was sort of like, how does this help impact Atlas Obscura, a smaller media venture than Slate? My view is that for a small media venture like the one I have right now, I don't have any revenue that's getting cannibalized by Facebook. So uh, there's nothing I'm not wouldn't lose something to put it on Facebook because I'm not getting any anyway, but I do need a large audience which Facebook can deliver. That makes sense. So, we'll see. John Dickerson, what's your chatter? My chatter is about a book called The Man Who Would Not Be George Washington by Jonathan Horn. It's about um it's about Robert E. Lee and I'm not done yet, but I'm in that um delightful state of historical wonder, which is what you is the advantage of not really knowing anything is that you're constantly amazed by history. And what's captivating me at the moment is the this choice that Lee had to make at the start of the Civil War and sort of the way in which you know, Lee and his connection to George Washington and the way in which Lee like a single decision by Robert E. Lee kind of all of the energy of history comes right down on him at that moment. So so just to set the stage, so Robert E. Lee's father, Henry Lighthorse Lee, was one of Washington's generals. He was, is cl- he was very close to him, and he gave a, a eulogy of Washington in which the famous line about George Washington, first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen, which many people have probably heard. So that's Lee's father. First fa- in war, first in peace, last in the American League. That's what 
the Washington Senators were known as. See, I'm amazed by your knowledge of history. I'm dazzled. My chatter next week will be about David. <laughs> I cannot believe plots. that's what you interrupted um, with. So then, but then, so that's that's Lee's father, Henry Lighthorse Lee. But then Lee marries the daughter of George Washington's adopted son. And they live in Arlington House, which was the house of George Washington's adopted son. So this is the Arlington House is across the Potomac from Washington on a big hill. It's now where Arlington Cemetery is. But that's that house is important. We'll come to play a little role later. Anyway, so this is not just like some family lore. This is like George Washington is connected to Lee. And for 30 years, Lee is a soldier in the army. He's obviously so in the same line of work. And the Civil War itself is a test of the union that George Washington helped create, right? So, but on the other hand, people, I mean, he founded this union that is the United States, but then other people were saying, but no, George, you know, George Washington broke off from an oppressive power. So Lee is being pulled. He gets an emissary from Lincoln comes to him and says, basically, you are the representative of George Washington's family. So you have to come with the union. And Lee, in the end, even though he didn't believe in secession, went and supported Virginia and became the leader of the Army of Virginia. And when he is given that title at the conference where Virginia votes to secede from the Union, uh, John Janney, 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 I can't remember who is the um, convention president, says to Lee, among the citizens of Virginia, we declare that you are first in war. We pray to God most fervently that you may so conduct the operations committed to your charge that it will soon be said of you that you are first in peace. And when that time comes, you will have earned the still prouder distinction of being first in the hearts of your countrymen. So she, he basically compares him to Washington using his father's own words about Washington. And this book, like just in the first, you know, quarter of it is it just has all of these like tight connections and is this, this wonderful vision of of this period of america and how it all comes down into this one guy general lee who makes a decision to go with the south you know gives up his original views about secession his when he leaves his house the union army immediately grabs it because if you set confederate cannons on that hill you could basically shoot the white house so he loses his house it's a and then there becomes a great court case which emily probably knows about it goes all the way to the supreme court about whether the union could take his house and the lee family gets it back but they get it back during the war? After, afterwards. Oh, okay. um, but Horn's argument is basically that we sometimes forget the roles that like single decisions and single people can make. And that here you had Lee making this fateful decision, the hardest of his life, to leave the army that he'd served for 30 years to go with the Confederacy, even though he really didn't, even though he didn't totally believe in it. And just how different things would have been if he'd made a different choice. Yeah, you know, you know that sounds very noble and romantic. But if he'd made a different choice, that's right. Come on, that's right. He I mean, like to, to present this as something which is a, like what, like oh, the agony and what I, I hate the deification of Robert E. Lee. I really hate it. Well, I mean, it's w- what's the case there? Well, so the case he fought there, for slavery in the end. Not only he fought for slavery, he abandoned the Union Army to fight for slavery. So the point is not to say Robert E. Lee, wonderful person. The point is to look at the history that it all comes down to this, you know, to this single person. I mean, that that a signature moment. I mean, there are millions of moments in the Civil War. But here you have the this person who is the leader of the Confederate Army with these ties to the founder of the country. Just as a historical tale, it's amazing. It's an extra, it's an incredible story. Yeah, like no. it was, and it wasn't like a simple, easy story. His, you know, people had ties to their states. That his ties to the state of Virginia, it was not an easy call for him. He had ties to his kin, to his state, and the the weight on him was was real. And I think 
that is an incredibly interesting story. Yeah, I, I guess I feel like it's just you know me and, and Ulysses S. Grant, but the idea that we come that history <laughs> we inherit a history in which Robert E. Lee and Ulysses S. Grant are parallel and equal I figures, and that Robert E. Lee stands as a symbol of great Southern heritage, and in the South, not, I don't think in the whole country. Oh they're yeah, the they're South. not parallel. The, well, Washington and Lee University is a university in Virginia. Right. But you're talking about it, parallel where? In Virginia, they're it, parallel? Well, You'd be lucky if they're parallel in Virginia. They probably aren't. No, Lee is well ahead in Virginia. But the Grant is a figure is a figure of fun. He's a we drunk. He's a disgrace. We have given Lee a big, fat pass, yeah. historically and, speaking, and, as well, a I don't, I don't think there's been a pass. There's been a an elevation from where he was. I mean, from which was at the depths of, you know, the ruined loser of that very, war. That was very little. By the time he dies, he's a, he's, his funeral is a national celebration. Right. But, but I think that's in part because, as Jonathan writes about, that part of what people saw, they were anxious to see the good in Lee because it meant knitting up the wounds of the war. Yeah. And that Lee embraced that so that when other generals were arguing for going into the melting back into the brush and becoming basically like an insurgent army and fighting out the war till a bitter end lee said that wasn't what he was going to do that they'd been defeated and now the job was to try to re to reintegrate and that that is the role for which people herald him after the war yeah but you know you you have to listen to the david blight passage about Reconstruction, the, 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 the segments about Reconstruction and kind of the lost cause narrative that the Confederacy, that the, Confeder- the people in the Confederate st- states and the losing side sets up after the war, which involves the kind of valorization of it, the sense of like these people acting nobly. And that sure. becomes one of the key buttresses for, for Southern America, which then proceeds to install Jim Crow to throw out Reconstruction to maintain so many of the st- the kind of oppressive racist structures that existed in the pre-war South. Right, but they're you allowed can't, to do because they they're given a moral you're pass not, on but, the war. But you're not blaming Jim Crow on on Robert E. Lee. No, but I'm. Well, you could it's, certainly it's, blame some of the of Jim Crow on the romantic power of the myth of the myth of the Confederacy that Lee is a key part of. Absolutely, you could draw that connection. Not the myth of we've got to join back into the Union. No, that's but what I I'm just talking think about. That's, oh, I understand that he that that was an important move he makes that he deserves. Well, that's my point. For. That's my point about where the the but valorization of the, Lee comes the from. Just because people misappropriate of Lee really sticks to that. I think it's much more absolving the Confederates. I mean, who's well, that's the villain fun. of the Confederates? No, it, there's. I mean, yes, it's totally possible that people misvalorize. Uh, Lee for their own purposes, that's totally, of course that's the case. But just because they do doesn't mean that Lee never, after the war, did things for which there was some, arguably some reason to say he acted above the way other people in the South were behaving. And that he yeah, played fine, some role. But it in doesn't def- undo all the damage of mythologizing the Confederacy. Of yeah, but those are two different things. One memory is, is very much a part that like did real historical damage to real people. Well, no shit. But my point. Is, yeah, but just we because got you on a curse. But just you got because, you on a curse, Emily. But just because somebody yeah. misappropriates a person doesn't mean that the then the person is on the hook for all the misappropriation of him. Just because a myth grows up around somebody and people use that to do horrible things. Is, does it, we're smart enough to know the distinction between the way in which people warp a myth and create a false myth and then what may be the case in reality about a, a human being in history. We, we're, that's our whole point is to know the distinction between the two. Yes, but I would also say that to me it matters more that Robert E. Lee fought for the Confederacy for all of those years 
continuing prolonging much emboldening the South and the Confederacy than that he did the right thing afterward. Like, why is well, that Well, well good God, nobody's arguing more. that. Good God, nobody's arguing that. But it feels, well, I haven't read this book. This book is <laughs> sounding awfully romantic and like, wow, Robert E. Lee, and look at this connection to George Washington and like, too bad his house was taken rather than like, I mean, come on. He did a lot of bad he did a lot of damage. Well, and yes, it came out of his moment in history and like his family and his connection to the South, but he still made the wrong choice and so people suffered as a result. Just because a person writes a history about a rich event in another person's life doesn't mean you're saying this person is awesome and is the greatest American and should replace Lincoln in the in the marble at the end of the mall. He was sounding like a great man to me. I have not a read story, this book. What do I know what I'm talking a about? Story I'm that, completely wrong. A story I that takes... A story that takes massive pressures on a on a person who spent one half of their life doing one thing and then makes a choice to go do another and wraps in all of the patriarchy and all of American history's like weight right on his head is an interesting story. It can be an interesting story without having to say he is the A number one aces person in America. You can go ahead and decide he's a total villain. But watching this person who built his life with the structure of his relationship to the family, his relationship to America and its honor and the union, and then chooses to make another choice is like it's Shakespearean. It's interesting. You know, like Richard III is no wonderful guy, but Richard III is still an interesting character in Shakespeare. Well, he wasn't sounding Richard very the, Richard III-like right, earlier gotta, in this chat. I mean, chatter, this is my favorite conversation. I could literally have this conversation for another hour, but let's not. And yet not, we've also already been having it for 20 minutes. Let's not. Volo has been, like, frantically gesturing at us. But I'm like, <laughs> this is this is why people pay for the show or something. Uh, do they? I don't think they I'm do. I'm going to just skip the, my, the the big the chatter I was going to do because we just talked for so long. My quick chatter is regular listeners of the GabFest know that I'm a huge fan of collective singing. There's been some wonderful moments of collective singing in the past week, which I would point you to in France at the moments of silence. In France, the La, La Marse- the Marseillaise is not, does not have the place in French society that the Star Spangled Banner does obviously it's like you know a well-known song but they're not constantly singing it all the time and there were these two spontaneous at moments every sporting event right well one at a, at a soccer game and then one at the French uh, the French legislature the soccer sport sorry uh, I just had to say that for the okay. fans who always ran well, the, to complain anyway, when anyway, I make anyway, fun of soccer. Anyway, so there's a, they're doing a moment of silence for the victims of Charlie Hebdo. And at the end of it, the fans at the stadium break out into Marseilles, just, you know, again, not orchestrated. And then the legislature, it, it happens. And the legislature one is really quite moving because it's very somber. And they, they, apparently they had not sung the Marseilles in the French legislature for just an unbelievably long period of time, like for – you know, for 50 years or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And it was, you know, surprising that they did it. So I would I would say go watch their videos of both on YouTube. Our intern is Tarek Barrett. Our producer is Mike Wolo. Our uh, managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Our show page is slate.com slash Gabfest. Links to what we talked about today. Facebook page is facebook.com slash Gabfest. Tell us what you think about Robert E. Lee. And we'd like to hear the consensus about Robert E. Lee. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is gabfestslate.com. You can subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. If you like the show, subscribing, commenting, and rating really helps us. Search for Slate Political GabFest in the iTunes store to find us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.